Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit different than usual. Rather than having me open with one of my usual monologues or rants or whatever you want to call it, we're going to hand the microphone over to our guest, Professor Gabriella Coleman from McGill University. Coleman has a new book, Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, which is an astoundingly great book delving into the world of Anonymous. Unlike the typical press portrayal of Anonymous, which tries to reduce the concept to simplistic phrases and ideas, Coleman has spent years studying Anonymous and various offshoots, and is clearly the world's foremost expert on what Anonymous is really about. She's going to now read a section from the book, though you should really read the whole thing yourself if you haven't already, and from there we'll have a discussion about Anonymous hacktivism, the book itself, and more with myself and Dennis Yang. So, Gabrielle, go for it. Great. Thanks for having me. So this is from the introduction. On July 29th, 2007, an entity calling itself anonymous, unknown at the time to all except the most erudite internet denizens, uploaded a video to YouTube. A metallic digital tone thrums as a headless-suited man appears over a blank background. A male voice begins to speak through the interference. Dear Fox News, it intones, the news organization had recently devoted a segment entirely to the group they described as the internet hate machine, a title the collective would subsequently adopt as a badge of honor. But for a collective that revels in trickery and guile, to simply laugh and dismiss such an expose would be to miss a great opportunity. And so the disturbingly ponderous down-pitch voice of Anonymous continues. The name and nature of Anonymous has been ravaged, as if it were a whore in a back alley and then placed on display for the public eye to behold. Allow me to say quite simply, you've completely missed the point of who and what we are. We are everyone and we are no one. We are the face of chaos and the harbingers of judgment. We laugh at the face of tragedy. We mock those in pain. We ruin the lives of others simply because we can. A man takes out his aggression on a cat. We laugh. Hundreds die in a plane crash. We laugh. We are the embodiment of humanity with no remorse, no caring, no love, and no sense of morality. The video ends. You have now got our attention. They certainly got mine. Soon after the video's publication, I became entangled in a multi-year research project on the collective that I have only now just twisted my way out of. And this book monumentalizes that struggle. The video was meant to satirize Fox News' hyperbolic characterization of Anonymous as the ultimate purveyors of internet pranking and trolling, hackers on steroids, as Fox had called them. And yet the creepy sentiments and chilling style captured the troll's terrifying side perfectly. Instead of overturning Fox News' ridiculously one-sided portrayal, the video seemingly confirmed it to the utmost, though only, of course, to those not in on the joke. And here I'm going to just give a bit of a transition for a second and go back to one paragraph. Six months after being called the Internet Hate Machine, Anonymous engages in earnest activism for the first time and soon after became a protest movement, a digital base one with real consequences across the world. And now back to the introduction. 
And yet, even after Anonymous drifted away from ungovernable trolling pandemonium to engage in the global political sphere, whenever people scrutinize its activist interventions, whether in a street protest or a high-profile computer intrusion, a question always seemed to loom. Are Anonymous and its adherents principal dissidents, or are they simply kids screwing around on the internet as lulls drunk trolls? <laughs> and to get the answer to that, you need to read the rest of the book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, let's let's so let's discuss this. I mean, let's discuss a little bit of the 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 background. I mean, you know, beyond just sort of seeing these things, what what sort of drew you to this topic in the first place? So I was drawn to the topic because I had a secret project, and it was on the Church of Scientology. Mm -hmm. As most geeks and hackers know, in the 1990s, when a number of critics of the church uh, released secret church documents on the internet, specifically on Usenet, the church kind of went ballistic and, <laughs> and started to sue people over trademark and, and copyright. There were big battles over anonymity. And I had a project on Scientology because I'd spent a year as a postdoc at the University of Alberta where there were the largest Scientology archives in the world. <laughs> and uh, I was quite secretive about the project. I was concerned about Scientology. And so when this thing by the name of Anonymous appears, and they became quite famous when they had first trolled and pranked the Church of Scientology and then turned around and kind of earnestly protested them, that's when I turned my attention to them, never thinking that they would go from a kind of trolling outfit and a, a boutique protest movement against Church of Scientology to what they became. Right. And, I mean, how quickly... How quickly did you realize that that, that that shift was happening? I mean, that that's it is kind of amazing, right? I mean, you look back at, at sort of, and and even today, I mean, I think that's part of what confuses everyone about it. Um, you know, you look back at sort of the 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 history or path that that anonymous has taken, and and it's you know it's it's not what I think anyone expected, even probably people involved in it. Absolutely, you know, trolling, you know, which exceeds anonymous. There's a lot of trolling sure. on the internet, but it's really cynical. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, got a politics because it's about transgression, but it's not a politics that seems amendable to earnest activism, <laughs> to activism about social justice. Yeah. And so it really seems inhospitable to the, the turn that anonymous took. And I did not expect it. And in fact, when they had started to protest the Church of Scientology, as an anthropologist, I had, I had an explanation, which was, you know, Scientology is the evil doppelganger, evil nemesis, tailor-made enemy of the hacker world because it's a religion of technology that does not work. And, you know, fake yeah. science, science fiction that they treat as science. So I was like, oh, okay, under the right conditions, the geeks will, of course, you know, attack Scientology, but never go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And then that's exactly what happened. And I do think in retrospect, um, there is an explanation. Uh, but at the, at the time it was unfolding, it was just a surprise every step of the way. Yeah, I mean, was, was there one specific thing that kind of marked a, a shift from kind of like a pranking trolling group to something different? Like what, what, what was it? So I think, you know, the earnest protesters against Scientology just, you know, made it kind of possible to think about Anonymous as an activist entity. Mm -hmm. And then you combine that with V for Vendetta as well, which right. <laughs> is really, you know, important in popular culture yeah. through the, both the graphic novel and the movie. But, but the two things that really secured it were, uh, 
when Anonymous supported WikiLeaks after the banking blockade, after all these companies right. acquiesced to, you know, U.S. government asking them to, to pull the plug when WikiLeaks um, releases the diplomatic cables. And then all of a sudden, Anonymous set the stage for the largest distributed denial of service attack in the world. And I think it drew enormous amount of tension. And there was a lot of validation that occurred through that operation. And then soon after, this was also the pivotal point, because up till then it was like internet issues, defend piracy, you know, anti-Scientology, yeah. WikiLeaks. And then when they got involved in Tunisia, mm -hmm. it was like, oh, this entity can get involved anywhere in the world. Had they not gotten involved in Tunisia, you know, it might have just sort of been this very, very internet-focused form of activism that, you know, just petered out even. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, I remember certainly, you know, when, when the story started coming out about, about the involvement in Tunisia, but just for, for our listeners who, who haven't, I mean, do you want to just give sort of a quick overview of, like, some of the stuff that they did? And, and you know, the thing that... I, that struck me as interesting about it um, as a kind of lead in w was, you know, you talked about sort of the difference between trolling and kind of earnest protest, but you know, they sort of, they brought the two of them together, right? I mean, the earnest protest was often done in a very trolling manner, even in situations that, you know, there's very serious things happening in the Middle East, uh, you know, and, and yet they were still taking sort of the, concepts of traditional internet trolling and then throwing it out in a in a very earnest manner it it, it struck me as a very um both surprising and and um you know interesting way that they that they went about doing these things absolutely so trolling you know was something that first of all occurred still under the name of anonymous pretty vigorously between 2008 and 10 and then almost entirely waned except that it was used tactically, mm -hmm. you know, very explicitly. And so trolling kind of showed its sharp dragon teeth, <laughs> you know, um, many times. And maybe we should talk about, you know, Operation Bart later, because that was sure. the, the perfect example of it. But with something with Tunisia, you know, some Tunisian geeks reached out to Anonymous on Internet Relay Chat, the kind of um, place where many Anons would hang out and they decided to eventually get involved. And, you know, on the one hand, they did very traditional uh, activist-y activist things like shuttle out videos and, you know, provide information about how to encrypt yourself. But they also were engaging in DDoSing, distributed denial of service attacks, overwhelming, you know, servers with uh, too many pings. They in engaged in quite a bit of hacking as well. Right. Um, and in some future operations, you know, they really, really were quite vicious in their trolling. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it strikes me as interesting just the, the way that those two things sort of come together. Just because, you, I mean, it, it's... Um, it's it's kind of funny just to see. I don't I don't know. If funny is the right word. I'm I'm struggling yeah. for. I mean, which is you know one of the one of the things in sort of talking about anonymous is there that there are sort of all these contradictions, but but it also kind of makes sense, right? I mean, the you know sort of the deeper you go into it, at least in my experience, right? It's like I I can understand, you know almost all of the things that happen and yet some of them like if you just took a step back you'd be like that doesn't make any sense but it but it does <laughs> absolutely I, I don't like to use the word random with anonymous uh -huh. but i like to use unpredictable yeah because you don't, you're not sure when they're going to strike yeah. um and and yet there's also some kind of core tactics that emerge time and again and because 
trolling is so well sometimes it's not morally ambivalent it's just like wow that's wrong but other times <laughs> right. it it is morally ambivalent yeah, you know a lot sure. of people when i present the scientology troll when anonymous was first trolling them like everyone laughs everyone's right. like that's so great that they sent pizzas to <laughs> the churches and they prank called the dynetics hotline you know yeah um and then in other moments when you know uh, there's collateral damage where, for example, when they hacked uh, into BART, uh, mm -hmm. Bay Area Rapid Transit, and we can talk about why they did that, um, you know, they released customer data. They had nothing to do with what went wrong, right? right. People were, even anonymous, were incredibly pissed. Yeah. Well, and, and that, I mean, sort of, you know, brings up the, you know, the other point, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I think, you know, traditionally, certainly, the, the press has a lot of trouble discussing anonymous and, and, and understanding is that, that just the, you know, I mean, just the fact that we're sort of referring to anonymous as a thing <laughs> is difficult, right? Because it's this sort of, you know, amorphous, not quite group, not quite idea, not quite, you know, concept. It, it's just, it, it's just its own thing. <laughs> right. And, and, um, and so it's it's even difficult to discuss because even like even as we're talking, I'm always like, well, yeah, we're, we're even the way we describe it isn't necessarily fair, mm -hmm, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. To anonymous, even and even you who spent all this time <laughs> writing an entire book about it, it's like how do you how do you encapsulate all of that into what is anonymous? Absolutely, you know that's why I also really I turn to the the trickster mm -hmm. mythology and uh, the trickster are figures. Uh, in literature and myth, like Puck from Shakespeare or yep. Coyote from uh, North American indigenous traditions. And one quality of many tricksters is that they shapeshift, they change form, yeah. and they're very hard to pin down. And I think Anonymous both because they're very mythic and the, the art they produce, and then they're also very hard to pin down, really <laughs> kind of aligns well with this trickster figure. And they have become like the Internet's trickster, uh, which oftentimes I think some people think, um, the trickster is there only to be celebrated, and the the trickster does, you know, function in important ways uh, in terms of reminding society that we have to have people who dare to break rules. But a lot of trickster myths also are used to to show well if people go too far right. in rule breaking, like mm -hmm. chaos and <laughs> you know destruction ensues. It's it's not simply for celebration, but yeah. for sort of learning from what's going on with the trickster. Yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, I think there's, it's interesting in that there are consequences, right? And um, it is interesting to see even how Anonymous itself has sort of dealt with, with those consequences, right? And so some of it is just in terms of things like, you know, as you were saying before, where, where um, certain members of Anonymous would release data that others felt were, was inappropriate. And there have been other times too where you know, anonymous will pick a target that other people think, you know, they shouldn't pick. And, and so they're, you know, have these offshoots and discussions. And of course, you know, some of the different offshoots, um, you know, argued that it's because anonymous was getting too political for this or, or too focused on, on this. And, and so it's, it's the sort of interesting ongoing experiment where, right. I mean, with all, all with regular experiments, you see things and you try this and that and something, some things work and some things fail. Right. And so you have that same sort of thing happening in a very sort of, you know, it's, it's, you know, prototype trolling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? That's excellent. Cause I think you're absolutely right. It is ongoing experimentation and they, they learn, 
and shift, but they're so open to trying new things. And because when you're open to trying new things, you have to be in an experimental mode. And I think that's right, always prototyping. um, And it's this fusion of trolling and activism uh, in a very experimental moment. So let me bring up something else in terms of, you know, if we're talking about the consequences of trolling, I mean, one of the the big consequences certainly is that a number of, of members of Anonymous around the globe have been arrested uh, and some are in jail and some will be in jail for a very long time. Um, how big of a shift do you think it was when, when members started to get tracked down and, and actually arrested for their activities? So I think the depth and extent of the arrests were significant enough, especially if you also include folks like Julian Assange, who hasn't been arrested, but obviously he's kind of in soft (laughs) form of house arrest, and Chelsea Manning, Mm -hmm. that there is something, you know, that I call a nerd scare in the book, quoting from a National Guild's lawyer. And I think while the crackdown against hackers and geeks is not as severe as against environmentalists and Muslims in, in the United States, we are going down that path. And it is certainly the case that there was a kind of chilling effect and also a shifting of both types of operations that came into being in the English-speaking world. So after many of the rest of 2011, 2012, you didn't have as many hacks occurring in the United States or Western Europe. Instead, you had cases like the ones revolving around publicizing rape cases mm-hmm. in Steubenville, Ohio, and Halifax, Canada, a little less high risk. I mean, there, there, there are risky moments, but it's not, you know, hacking defense contractors right. left and right, right? It's just like, whoa, like Cory Doctorow, I think, described it as like insane risk-taking. Right. <laughs> but there has been a shift where there's a lot of hacking going on in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So there's a group called Lulsec Peru, and they almost brought down the Peruvian government in September of 2014 when they hacked into the government. They found really damning emails about government corruption. There was a vote um, in the government and they were one vote shy from dismantling. And they're still quite active and, uh, you know, understandably reporters, first of all, it's tough to access the hackers and then if you have to do it in a foreign language, it's almost impossible. So a lot of that activity going on in in Asia and Latin America is going on below the radar right now. Mm-hmm. Um, which which brings up another question, certainly, um, which is just, I mean, how, you know, you ended up getting to know a lot of the, the different people who are involved in Anonymous, and, and uh, I mean, how, how did you do that in the first place, and sort of, uh, how do you think that impacted the way you sort of viewed everything that they're doing, and in terms of, you know, how you presented them in the book? When a lot of journalists read the book, I think that they're a little bit shocked and surprised at how close I got to Mm -hmm. individuals, both during my time online and then after people got arrested. I went to prison and I went to trials and I, you know, hung out with members of Anonymous. I wrote them letters of recommendation at certain points. (laughs) Um, But for an anthropologist, this is par for the course. This is what we do. The closer you get, the better, you know, at some level. Mm -hmm. And it is certainly the case that, you know, most anthropologists pick topics that they're somewhat already... Uh, sympathetic towards otherwise you're going to have like a hellish time for the next <laughs> couple of years like hating everyone you're studying right, right? and there are certainly you know um, trade-offs so because they trust you so much they give you information that they might not give to someone who is more uh, impartial right. right 
And I think as I went along, I just made it very clear, you know, that I, I was very sympathetic. But one of the things I was very mindful to do was include those ugly moments uh, during the activism. Mm -hmm. um, and I include them because I feel like people have to make their own kind of reach their own conclusion as to whether this is acceptable or not acceptable. So that's a little bit about the kind of anthropological relationship. One of the interesting things is that this book would not, this could not have been written in the form it was except for those arrests. Right. I got a lot of data during the course of my research but I was very adamant that people should not be giving me criminal information, especially as it was occurring. <laughs> yeah. And I would have to remind people. And a, a couple times they kind of still told me things I wish they hadn't. They were pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. Right. Um, but I was really nervous. I was really nervous of what would happen if, you know, the government came knocking on my door and subpoenaed me. I was like, I would have to go to jail. And I was trying to avoid that. Right. And after the arrests and people went through the court systems, they were able to talk more freely. Uh, they offered up chat logs that were either part of the, the legal case or they just leaked them to me and, and had anonymized them. So I was able to get, you know, forms of data that would not have been possible had, you know, all those hackers had, had they had better security, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, how, how concerned are you personally that, I mean, because... You know, for better or for worse, and, and oftentimes I think for worse, you know, especially among certain government officials, they still see Anonymous as a sort of, you know, hor horrifying, horrible, you know, online terrorists that need to be tracked and taken down and all these kinds of things. And so they're certainly investigating and have investigated, you know, even you know, beyond the arrests. Um, are you nervous that, that, that people are tracking you as well? So I was pretty sure that during my research, they were tracking me. Mm -hmm. And it was somewhat confirmed later when Hector Monsegur, also known as Sabu, who was a very charismatic hacker involved in Anonymous, LulzSec, an offshoot, and Antisec, also an offshoot, was revealed um, to be an informant. So there was a big article in Fox News in March right. of 2012. And I had met with him uh, about six times in New York City, and he had reached out to me. Hmm. And I could only assume that he was under the FBI's watch at the time. Right. You know, I think he had probably his own agenda as well, and he never would, like, you know, answer me explicitly. I asked him once his name was revealed. And, you know, we our first meeting was, like, in a Chipotle. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know, you don't have to and asked for permission to, to get a burrito. I was like, well, you know, supposedly that you were under their watch 24 hours a day, so maybe you do have to ask permission to get a burrito with the anthropologist, you know? And that was very disconcerting, and I think I got really sick soon after. I mean, I was really stressed about that. Yeah. And um, I knew, you know, when I was meeting with him, I knew, like, always that's a possibility. And he, he was actually not fishing it. Uh, directly for information, had he been, you know, the red flags probably would have gone up too much, you know? Mm -hmm. So who knows what was going on? And one thing is clear, too, is that, well, he is the only one we came to learn about, and that's very interesting why, because yeah. they don't like to give up their names of informants. There, there are probably other ones as well. Right, right. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, going to sort of a more recent um, case also there's the whole um, situation with Barrett Brown right who recently got um, sentenced to, to jail I was um, going to say nailed but yeah yeah that's <laughs> a, a, a fair assertion on it um, 
uh, and you know what was interesting there and there's obviously a lot of different pieces that are interesting there where you know he was accused of being a part of anonymous he claimed he he was just basically reporting on them and had connections to them um, and then you know a lot of the focus of his case was that some of the charges were based on his copying a link um, to the um, the documents that had been hacked from Stratfor and those included some credit cards and therefore he he was accused because he copied and pasted that link into basically a chat room that that was trafficking in stolen credit card information and those charges after people sort of freaked out about the idea that merely copying and pasting a link should be seen as trafficking in stolen cards um, those charges were dropped and yet when he was actually sentenced the judge still brought those that up as part of the reason why he gave him such a long sentence um, and I know that, you know, certainly for folks on the reporting side of the table, it's made plenty of people really nervous that th that should be seen as a criminal thing. And I know that um, Quinn Norton, who is a reporter who also covers anonymous, you know, and, and, and assorted offshoots very closely, has basically said that she's kind of now afraid to report on it anymore. Um, what was sort of your reaction to, to all of that? Did you feel sort of similar to, to Quinn or, or how, do you, how did you feel about everything that kind of came out with, with the sentencing of Brown? Yeah, the sentencing was outrageous. And so yeah. far as, you know, you, you have um, the charge dropped, which was thanks to excellent kind of uh, legal help and because the charges were so bogus in the first place, and yet they sneaked their way back in, yeah. you know. And in two ways, you know, both for the kind of sentencing guidelines, but his fine as yeah. well. He got fined, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. He didn't hack. He didn't ask them to hack. He wanted the kind of journalistic information. In fact, he had offered to redact the names um, to kind of protect the people's uh, information, right? And so to me, it was just so disturbing because in this case, the message being sent was, you know, even if you're a journalist, if you are working in any way closely with hackers, we are going to get you. Yeah. And there is this burgeoning fifth estate of hackers and leakers and whistleblowers and bloggers who, you know, don't have as much um, institutional protection as a reporter for the New York Times who don't have as much protection as I, you know, maybe tend to have with an institution. So they're, they're very vulnerable. And I am currently not so concerned because I'm not in the thick of things, mm -hmm. but had that happened in the middle of my research, you know, I might have had to really recalibrate in certain ways that would have been problematic in, in so far as it would have chilled my research, right? Yeah. And I can't, again, it happened afterwards. The book is out. I'm not so concerned um, because, you know, I might engage in this sort of research again, but I'm not doing it now. But had it happened during the time, I, it, it probably would have forced me to change what I was asking and doing. And that's a problem. Yeah. Because no. it was legitimate, you know? Yeah, yeah. And well, some I, of the other charges, yeah, he should have gotten in trouble for, but, you know, yeah. not, not this one. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's why, I mean, the fact that it sort of came back up even after they dropped those charges is, is really concerning. <laughs> it's really concerning. And it's, you know, at least they were explicit about it. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, maybe uh, yeah. they had to be. I, because it, it signals what we're up against. 
in many ways. Once I thought I was gone, I thought it was gone, that yeah. charge. Yeah, well, so did I. I mean, that's why I was, I was actually really confused when I, when I saw the reporting from the, from the courtroom and people were talking about it. I was like, but they, they dropped that charge. Why is the judges even bringing it I up? I was so confused. I yeah. was like, wow, you know, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I follow <laughs> right. this stuff closely and, and this is confusing me. Yeah. And, and just on that, in terms of um, sort of going back to, to the different people, you know, um, being put in jail and, and all this kind of stuff, um, you know, one interesting element to it also that, that struck me was the, the different ways that um, defendants in the U.S. were treated as opposed to some of the defendants overseas. Um, and it seemed like the level of punishment that was given to uh, people in the U.S. was much more serious um, than, than overseas. And, and uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that or sort of what was both actually both what was your reaction to it? And also, what do you think the reaction was among people who were involved with Anonymous? The sentencing around Anonymous is a good vantage point to look at U.S. exceptionalism in, in the law when it comes to criminal punishments, whether it's hacking or everything else. Or the sentencing guidelines for about every crime mm -hmm. uh, really exceed what goes on in, in much of the sort of Western world. Mm -hmm. And it was quite another thing, though, going to actual trials as well. So I went to... Uh, a trial in Ireland where two young men who had participated in, in LulzSec Anonymous, they had uh, defaced the Fine Gael political party website. And I went to the trial expecting, you know, like a very, very serious trial that was simply about the case. And yes, like many of the other ones in UK, I thought they were going to get a lot less time, but nevertheless, it was going to have like a certain gravitas mm -hmm. and seriousness. And I show up an hour late, first of all, because I've ditched my cell phone by then after Snowden. And I wasn't late because the case, the two cases were rolled in with about another two dozen very petty crimes. Right. I'm talking about like riffraff stealing, uh, stealing, you know, beer from the local <laughs> shop or whatever. Right. And I just could not believe it. I mean, I was like, wow, this is in the middle of these things. And, and the judge, uh, you know, when they came up, it, the atmosphere did change a little bit because clearly they, they stuck out. But the judge really could tell what was going on. She was very unhappy with what they did. Mm -hmm. She did not think what they did was political, but she also was like, you didn't harm anyone. You defaced uh, the website. I don't want to send you to jail. That's going to ruin your lives. This is not necessary. The Fine Gael, um, defendants were like, it costs $10,000 to put back our website. And they're like, the judge is like, why? Don't you have like backups? <laughs> right. She's really smart. You know what I mean? And then next thing you know, no jail time, a minor fine, which half goes to charity, half goes to the political party. And being there just reminded me about how different it is in the United States. And remember the British guys who really were on these huge hacking sprees you know, the, the, the most that a person got was 15 months right. uh, in jail after serve. He had a 30 month, but it was, um, you do half that time and no fine. His life is not ruined. Right. And, you know, 15 months in jail is, is a big punishment still. Yeah. Right. And so I think the question is, are there going to be reform movements in the United States to try to change this? And importantly, is the U.S. trying to pressure probably these countries to, to the move? The other way yeah so but hack on the other side of the atlantic you know if you're going to do it yeah i mean that, that the story about the the irish trial um which is in the book and and you know 
one of the things that has struck me is it just sort of just brings you back and reinforce the idea that like for the most part, especially for the people who are involved, for for the most part, this is sort of, you know, juvenile messing around, right? And and yet the the way it's often treated um, by law enforcement, certainly, is that it's like, you know, on par with terrorism. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of very weird disconnect. Um, and part of it, I think, is just because of, you know, ignorance. And, and this is different and new and, and you know, because it's, it's different than, you know, graffitiing a wall or stealing beer from the corner shop that it somehow seems scarier. Um, but it's, you know, it's something that I do wonder also as the sort of more digital generation grows up and, and, um, you know, gets into positions of power, if that, that issue becomes, uh, you know, less and less, or if they, if they get less and less scared by things like that, of course, there'll be, I'm sure there'll be something new to be scared by. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, uh, we're going to, we're going to wrap up this podcast, but we're going to have you around for another podcast as well. So if, uh, for all of our listeners, if you're enjoying this conversation, um, keep listening to us because uh, Gabrielle will be back. Thanks for so, having me. But thank you for being here. Thanks Sisters and friends are enough.